The university is an institution of higher education that awards academic degrees in a variety of disciplines and fields of study. But it is more than brick and mortar, curriculum and transcripts, and athletic programs and social networks. It is people, past, present, and future, who give it a unique identity and compelling sense of purpose as a learning community. The university is a place with a history and geographic location shaped by its environment and surroundings. It has a moral responsibility to serve the people and places in the region where it is located and beyond. The university is also an engaging conversation over a long period of time about the things that matter most. It is a convening place for probing timeless questions and exploring consequential ideas. Welcome to Campbell Conversations. I am Brad Creed, the fifth president of Campbell University and host for these conversations. Welcome to Campbell Conversations. I am Brad Creed, the fifth president of Campbell University located in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. A university is an engaging conversation over a long period of time about the things that matter most. And to talk to me today about some of the things that matter most is my guest, Kent Annan. Kent is uh, affiliated with Wheaton University, and he will tell us a little bit more about his work. Uh, many months ago, we had planned to have him in person, physically present here on campus. But uh, if you've been asleep for the last few months, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And Kent has graciously uh, agreed to join us virtually today, and he's been meeting with our students as well. Kent, welcome to Campbell University. Thank you, Brad. Great to be with you, and I, I, I'm gratefully with you, and also regret that I can't be there together with you and students and faculty and staff in person. Well, tell us a little bit about your work. I know you, you have a home in Florida, but you told me today you're out west of Chicago in the suburbs at uh, Wheaton University, which is a very fine school. Yes, so I, um, I am working now at Wheaton College, uh, director of a master's program here, master's of humanitarian and disaster leadership. So people going in to work with disasters, with FEMA, with nonprofits, you know, the kind that you'd think of with World Vision down to smaller ones. And so I'm grateful to be teaching students and working with a great team here at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute to serve students and serve the church around the world as it responds to people in need. And Kent, where are you originally from? So I grew up, uh, I was actually born in Canada. Mom's American, dad's Canadian. And so I kind of bounced back and forth. So lived in Canada for the first 10 years of my life. I uh, was American from birth because my mom. And then we moved down to Florida we went there through uh, through undergraduate, um, and then I moved to Europe. I worked in worked in Europe for a while. I can tell more of that story later, but really kind of grew up a mix of kind of two opposite places: Northwest Canada and uh, Southeast United States down in Florida. Yeah, you've been around. Are you a graduate of Wheaton University? I'm not. I actually went to um, Palm Beach Atlantic University down there in Florida. Um, just a great school, really enjoyed my time there. And then for graduate school, I went to Princeton Seminary up in New Jersey. Uh, so th those are the two institutions I've gone to. All right. Well, we're, we're interested in uh, institutions of higher education here. I had to ask you that question. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the work you're doing. How did uh, you get into this? I you have to have a strong sense of call to do the kind of work that you do where people are living on the margins and uh, you see a great deal of suffering. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, just like the students you're working with there uh, at the college, I, 
you know, I was coming to the end of college and I was on the uh, track of going into business, which is a great, great way to be faithful to God and do this sort of work. But then had a family friend recruit me and say, okay, just spend two years working uh, kind of in missions development work. And then you can go back to what you thought you were going to do. I've been president of the business club and the sort of saw that as a clear track, but you know, something about this sort of got my attention, a sense of call, a sense of adventure. Went and worked with refugees for two years. I lived in England and France, traveled all over Western Europe working with refugees. And it changed the direction of my life. You know, people who I cared about and, you know, saw in the headlines and became friends. I saw the needs up close and, you know, changed the trajectory. Now, 26, 27 years later, uh, this still continues to be what my, what my life is about, trying to find ways to serve those who are, as you said, kind of on the margins of society. Right. You have written a book, and by the way, to our listeners, I would recommend it. It's, it's a very readable and helpful book called Slow Kingdom Coming, Practices for Doing Justice, Loving Mercy, and Walking Humbly in the World, a biblical allusion to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, I believe. And yeah. um, one of the things I like about your book are the personal stories you tell. Um, uh, people, real people who are trying to live their lives beyond paycheck and career and the American dream, something that's meaningful. You talk about churches too, and you describe the experience of Calvary Church in Holland, Michigan, and uh, many church members could identify with this. But in the midst of that, you you identify how churches spend a lot of their resources on themselves, uh, their financial resources. They have a lot of programs, their time. Um, but tell us about the more excellent way for churches to think about their life together and how they invest their resources. And you mentioned specifically the biblical concept of Jubilee in reference to Calvary Church in Michigan. Yeah, so I still met this church. I was so I lived for um, uh, two and a half years in Haiti with my wife uh, before moving back and starting a nonprofit that focused on Haiti. And along these ways, I got to work with lots of great churches that were generous, involved in missions and giving to poverty programs, working with refugees. And so one of them was this Calvary Church I talked about in the book. And what I loved about them is they really had this vision of so much of their resources, like a, it was a growing ch church. They took care of themselves as a community, but they really had this outward vision of giving away a big percentage of their income to missions, uh, missions both local. They did a lot of after-school tutoring and to international missions. They worked with us in Haiti. They would, and And I think it was that, sense of generosity not becoming too inward but seeing god's mission is uh, always an outward mission but it's not to neglect of you know the community but this community moving outward was one important move they did and then i think inspired by this uh, idea we have from the old testament of jubilee that's this kind of resetting a moment of grace and thinking these the systems of poverty that keep people in poverty we shouldn't just accept them as christians as the way it's going to be the way it ought to be the way it stays but like, this radical vision in the Old Testament of Jubilee, I think in the New Testament of say, the Sermon on the Mount and other things that Jesus talks about, say, no, let's think about a resetting and of giving and a radical generosity that can reset things. And it doesn't just reset for the people that we're helping. It resets for us. We get to see the world and be liberated into kind of new ways and new relationships. Yeah. So many churches in the United States, and it would be true for a lot of the churches here where we are, uh, are very small churches. I would say the majority of churches in the United States have less than 100 members and dwindling resources and aging populations. And it's a challenge for them to maintain facilities and support a full-time pastor. What would be your counsel to some of these smaller churches regarding 
faithful commitments that lead towards justice and jubilee? Yeah, I think there are all kinds of story. I don't, I don't, this isn't really a specialty, but what I see that I find inspiring that kind of go along in the same way as you described it. So many churches are, are on the edge themselves. I think one is uh, being people of grace, you know, that we're, we're, we're people of grace and so we're experiencing grace together. And another is a lot of these communities, when they can partner with local, you know, if it's rural or whether it's urban, whatever the setting finding out what are the needs, like what are you listening to locally and what are the needs? And then something we I talked about in the book and also in the work I do now with my colleagues here with churches all over the world, and sometimes our work is in response to disasters, we say, uh, do your work out of the gifts and calling that God has for you. Mm-hmm. So for example, if a disaster strikes, it isn't that you all of a sudden want to become a disaster response ministry or you're becoming a mini FEMA that's responding. It's usually, usually not all the time, but usually the best way to respond is what are our gifts? You know, is it working with older adults? Is it working with immigrant populations? Is it, do we have a gift for really ministering to children in our church? What are our gifts and how do we pivot and step into those? I think that's true after disaster. And also in the situation you mentioned, it's true. If you find yourself in the situation, want to minister locally, think about what the needs are think about where your gifts are and kind of think about where your joy and God's calling is. And if you can bring those together, I think as individuals and as churches, you can really lead to ministry that's not just out of obligation, but ministry that can keep going, be sustainable and keep getting deeper. That's helpful counsel. Thank you for sharing that. Well, we live in the United States whose form of government is a democracy. Um, I've been reading the Bible all my life and uh, Christian since I was age 11 and attending church and I'm familiar with the language about the kingdom of God. It's a very important concept, but uh, we live in a world where there are not many kings or queens. Queen Elizabeth in uh, Great Britain is hanging in there. (laughs) But uh, this is very important to your work, and I think important to all Christians who desire to follow Christ more faithfully. How do you describe the kingdom of God? And in reference to your book, why is it so slow in coming? Hmm, yeah, both big questions that are hard, to, hard theological questions to answer succinctly. But I think for what the kingdom of God is, I think if we go to Jesus' prayer, as Jesus taught us uh, to pray, or what we call the, uh, the uh, Our Father prayer, you know, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I think if we think about kingdom of God, Jesus uses different metaphors. It seems like on purpose, Jesus and God, you know, don't give us like this precise definition that, that we all have. He uses metaphors, uses parables. But I think in this prayer, we can say, well, the kingdom of God is that life is functioning the way God would want it to be. I mean, people are flourishing. Relationships are flourishing. A relationship with creation is flourishing in that God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. So I think that as this kind of core definition is helpful for us to have. You mentioned the subtitle of the book relates to uh, Micah 6, 8. We have different parts of scripture can inform us to think, oh, it's doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with God. So I think all of this informs our view of God's kingdom uh, and and ultimately that it's uh, that it's that it would be coming, that the world would be working the way God intends it to work. Um, why is it slow coming? I think that's sort of the story of scripture starting in Genesis 1, that, that it's uh, it's slow coming and it's been slow coming for thousands of years. Jesus prayed that prayer, that kingdom come on earth as in heaven 2,000 years ago. And I think all of us would say that prayer is not fulfilled 
yet. So for me, what's important is this is to recognize it. Uh, and in that we have lament. I think we can look around our world right now and COVID-19 and other tensions we have and say, like we lament, like the, the world is not how we would hope it would be, not how ultimately God wants us to flourish. And so we lament, but then we hope, we say, oh, the kingdom is coming. We see this breaking into our lives. We see God's grace breaking into our lives all the time. We want to be people on the side of hope. And then we commit and say, okay, in that prayer, I don't think it's just a passive prayer, but it's an invitation to participate in God's kingdom coming. And if we can lament and then hope and commit in participating, we say, oh, it's slow in coming. There are, uh, as it says in Romans, the kind of creation is groaning. We're feeling that groaning in our country and around the world. Um, but we also have this opportunity to participate in things getting better as we love our neighbor and love God. Yeah, great. I uh, remember the late Dallas Willard often described mm. the kingdom of God as uh, the range of God's effective will. Mm. And mm -hmm. um, that's one way to think about it. Uh, it's God's way of doing things as we see it through uh, yep. Christ. Um, I like that. Well, according to your book, participating in this slow coming kingdom uh, involves um, several habits or, or postures. One of those is paying attention. You have a whole chapter on attentiveness. Um, that's something I had trouble doing in school when I was growing up. And uh, mm -hmm. so how does paying attention help us to understand the kingdom and participate in its reality? Yes, I have an 11-year-old son who's kind of sitting in front of Zoom for, for six or seven hours a day. 11-year-old boys were not, uh, were no. not designed to, to no, be doing weren't. this. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I think the attention is important. I was actually talking with my daughter. She, my daughter is 15 uh, now. And so I was talking with her, and I think she's feeling some of that weight as she wants, you know, becomes more aware in the world and, and feels the weight of, like, uh, the things that are going wrong, about politics and COVID and, and uh, suffering that's happening as COVID's effects ripple out. And I think for me, what I found in doing this kind of work is I, two things could happen. One is I could look around at all the needs of the world and just say, it's too much. I'm just going to focus on me and mine and move forward. And it's just too much to take in. So I'm going to kind of choose ignorance and move forward. I think the other thing I could do is sometimes just feel like I had to take on the full weight of everything. And then almost, you know, you want to curl up in a fetal position and just lie on the floor. Like it's too much to handle. But I, I think what we're called to in this practice of attention is, is to answer this question of what's God calling me to? What can I do and what's my part? And I think that that enables us to keep going and to make a difference and to not either ignore needs or be overwhelmed by needs, but to contribute our part. And so to me, that's really an important starting place as people awaken to justice is to think, what am I called to? I think Frederick Buechner, the author, has a nice way of talking as a well-known definition of vocation, kind of where the world's deep hunger and your kind of great joy meet. And I would add as I do this kind of work and where your gifts come in as well. But if we can kind of come to this place where the world's needs and your joy and your gifts come together, you don't have to do everything, but you do have to do what God's called you to. And when we do that, I think we can, we can really make a difference in other people's lives. So many uh, churches are involved in short-term mission trips. And um, I mean, there are many benefits to those. There, there are perhaps drawbacks. Um, I think you've seen plenty examples of, of, of both of those. Mm -hmm. um, when I was 16 years old, I was with a musical group and, and traveled to Haiti. Um, our own Campbell University School of Medicine travels once or twice a year on a medical mission to Haiti, as mm -hmm. well as other 
places. I think I've probably read in your book every year 1.5 million Americans spend over $2 billion to go on short-term mission trips. Um, the criticism is this becomes uh, poverty tourism. It becomes a means of satiating our own cultural curiosities and, and developing our own interest. Um, talk to me about that. That is uh, a drawback to our involvement with people of other cultures, even out of the best of intentions, is it not? It is. It is. I'm first I wanted to say I loved, the, I loved when I learned about Campbell's connection with with Haiti, both the medical school and you, as I, I, I love Haiti and have uh, spent a good amount of the last 15 years there, kind of traveling back and forth as well as living there. So, yes, but I, I've seen, I think I participated early on in the, as I was learning in this version, it can be called poverty tourism. And what I like about it is it sort of calls it, kind of can stop us in our tracks and say, oh, is, the, is what we're doing for a week or two weeks going to help? benefiting me much more than it's benefiting the people that go there. Now we kind of say that that's often, you know, I have a conversation like, Oh, I received so much more than I gave. Like that's a good humble posture, but it also should kind of stop us in our tracks and say, wait, if, if, if we're really receiving way more than we give, is this a good thing to do? Or it, can it actually turn into exploitation of people who are already vulnerable? People receive us. We go for a week. We have a meaningful time. They show extreme hospitality to us after a week. That was great. We move on and we're on to the next experience. And I think if we do that, we really are in danger of poverty tourism or exploiting people who we should serve. So I propose in a book sort of a poverty tax where we say, oh, we need to, um, or sorry, a respect tax. But, you know, how do we make sure we do these with deep respect? And that's going to demand more of us. People are in a privileged position of being able to make these kind of trips. So how do I speak about people? What are the effects that happen afterwards? What's my commitment to the people I visited? Does it last for longer than a week? And what I'm trying to do here is just say, the people that we're going to visit deserve our attention and our respect, um, and we'll be better for it, and so will they if we slow down enough to take it seriously. And so I don't think there's an exact formula for how to do these trips well, but I do know we should slow down and think about what's the difference we make long-term uh, how do we grow? How am I changed? How does it affect change for others? And if we're asking those questions, then I think at least we're on the right track. 20 years ago, when I was at another institution, um, I was a professor of record for a short-term urban missions course. We went to the city of El Paso, Texas, and its sister city, Juarez. Um, this was illustrated to me very clearly when we went over to we would call it a shanty town in Morris. Uh, it had a very provisional feel to it where people lived on the margins. And there was a nice brick church in the middle of uh, these cardboard houses. A group from Texas had come to build that for them. And then we gathered at a church. I thought we were going to that church, but where we went wasn't a church building. It was out under a tree and there was a vibrant group of people there, not many going to the building. And, the whole issue was partnerships and you have a chapter there that illustrated to me and the students that we can come in and do good things for people. But when we don't learn from the people that we're working with and let them take the lead, sometimes our good intentions and efforts are counterproductive. Have you, have you seen situations like that in the past? Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, I, I think a, a couple of, 
uh, economist wrote a book a few years ago, that, uh, 10 years ago, that's really helpful, even just in the title. It, it's a great book, but even just the title of When Helping Hurts uh, happens. But I think we really want to be aware when there's a power imbalance, you know, we go down and we're the people with money and we're the people traveling into community, even if we're, we, we don't feel like powerful people, you know, many of us uh, in the grand scheme of things, but, you know, you have power where people might not um, be telling you, oh, that's not a good idea. Uh, because you're coming down there to help or invest in their community. And so we want to be really aware of power dynamics. And what I actually, in my class with my graduate students yesterday, talked about accountability. So we're talking about nonprofit structures and boards and all these different technical things. But one of the things that's really important is being accountable to the people we're serving. And so uh, two things I talked about with that are being accountable to the people we're serving with this power dynamic and what are the kind of practices so we're really listening to uh, each other and then the other is are we being effective in helping well and I think a, a big part of that like you said is who's kind of making choices who's making the choices there are we doing a lot of hard work to listen well so we're making good choices and I think you know for people who are listening one encouragement is um, maybe it sounds discouraging but it's encouraging is doing good listening like this takes a lot of effort and it also can take a lot of time you know i talk about the in the book i talk about this story that i learned in haiti when you're out in the countryside you go to visit someone and there's this tradition you stop because there weren't fences and people kind of lived in the countryside a lot of life happens outside but you stop at the edge of the laku like the yard and say honor which means honor and then you pause there and you don't go in until they say respect which is respect like i'm coming with honor for you you're receiving me with respect and we go in. And so I love that. I think it's just beautiful in the moment, like respect for each other. I think it's beautiful when we go on these kind of trips and partner. But I also think one of the things that happens is sometimes in the kind of situation you, you were talking about in Juarez is it can take two or three years before you really hear have that on-air respect exchange to build that kind of trust, show you're coming with humility, show you're really going to listen to the feedback. They're going to like be small tests along the way. But if we do that, then I think, you know, we're not going to make, we're not going to end up with projects that aren't helpful. Uh, we're going to end up with projects can, that can really help people. Yeah. Well, Haiti, you spent a lot of time there. And um, I went when I was a teenager and it's as though I went a, a year ago. It had a profound experience on me. Um, uh, that was back when Papa Doc, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Duvalier was the president, a lot of, a lot of corruption. And uh, many, many Christians are concerned about Haiti. And as I told you, our medical school goes there. Yep. But I have to be honest and, and say, I'm not so sure Haiti's doing any better now than it, than it was back then. Uh, it's subject to hurricanes and environmental degradation. Mm -hmm. And um, people go to every other place in the Caribbean to travel except to Haiti, unless they're going for the purposes that, that you command. What's happening yep. in Haiti today? Are there, are there signs of hope or is this an endless cycle? Yeah, I, no, it's a, it's a great question. And I think part of it is, you know, I always encourage my students in this as well as we look back at the last 50 years, like you said, and the U.S. was supporting dictators, but we can go back four or 500 years to uh, exploitation. And Haiti has this incredible story of uh, achieving independence, be the first and only successful slave revolt that achieved independence under this incredible slavery. And then immediately upon independence, France and England and the U.S., instead of encouraging sort of, you know, drain their wealth right away. And it's just continued this cycle of external exploitation as well as internal exploitation, you know, of their own 
leaders there. So it is a, a, a place of beauty that I love and so many friends there. But, you know, as you mentioned, it has this tragic history. I think when we look at these things, you know, I'm reading development economists all the time. You say there are these different poverty trap issues of institutions and poverty that are really hard to get out of. But we've also seen many countries, you know, over a 50-year cycle, if you think of South Korea, if you think of some of these, Vietnam, these other countries that can get on this trajectory, that's really positive and lifts significantly um, the living standard and health and child mortality of people in the country. So by no means, so I think it's um, an endless cycle, but I do think there's a, there are a lot of challenges, both you know external support as well as internal leadership um, that a lot of people are working on, but but really you know, needs a, a lot more work to happen. Yeah. When I was in college, um, I guess like many of our students today, I, I have had a lot of enthusiasm for, for serving the Lord. I, I still do, I hope. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, wanted to be busy, wanted to be about something important. And, uh, you know, going on mission trips and witnessing to people and, uh, you know, wanting to change the world. Uh, I had a neighbor back home who... Uh, came over one day when I was home from college. She was a member of the Episcopal Church. I was a Baptist. Um, and she gave me as a gift uh, the Book of Common Prayer, which is the worship guide for the Episcopal Church. And it opened up a remarkable conversation. And she told me that when she was in college, she had uh, almost become a Baptist. But she recommitted herself to the Episcopal Church. And and I said, well, like King Agrippa in the book of Acts, you were almost persuaded. What kept you from it? And she said, I did not become a Baptist because I did not think I was physically capable of it. And you could substitute that word Baptist with evangelical. Mm -hmm. My point is, is that um, you're a very active person and this is an active, engaged kind of life that you're calling us to. Um, I think it was John Wesley who said, um, mission is to the church what fire is to burning. But I've read recently um, where someone has suggested mission is not what the Bible or the church is about. God is what the Bible and the church are all about. So I think the woman back in college was telling me, there needs to be time when you have quietness, when you attend to your soul, where it's about prayer and worship. Um, and I know that's an important part to your life, but how do, how do we get students particularly to balance this out? They want to do something. Yeah. And um, I think worship and prayer and um, being quiet before God are the things that will sustain us over the long haul. Mission's important yeah. too. Indeed. No, I love this question, Brad. I think you're absolutely right. And something I know, I know I've matured into uh, over time and watching my busyness and, and seeing people who can burn out in, in missions. So no, I, I think they're just completely interrelated and the, the church is about God and relationship with God. Um, but it's, it's a, and I said, not, but, but it's this, these two loves, you know, of love for God and love for our neighbor. And they're, they're completely intertwined as Jesus talks about them as it's talked about through scripture. So um, for me, you know, church is essential. Uh, every one of my classes, we start with a, a really contemplative approach uh, to doing devotions together called Lectio Divina, where we read the same scripture passage over. So yesterday I, I lead the first time and then my students take turns every week we're doing this and we read the same scripture passage over uh, four different times in about 15 minutes where we're just slowing down, listening, listening for God's word. What is it speaking to our lives? How are we responding to God in prayer? 
And so to me, I think this has been an essential part of being uh, active in the world is to being contemplative isn't the right word, but to be meditative and to be, to be, you know, spending time in my relationship with God. Um, I don't think one can go without the other, you know, as Christians that they, they're so related. Um, I think the, the sort of self-care element is one way people talk about it as well Is if you're called to this kind of work, like you're going to be, I mentioned earlier, you know, your heart's going to be broken and you're going to see, you mentioned Haiti, the slow kingdom coming, like change is going to happen slowly. It's going to be one step forward and 17 steps back. And, you know, like this is part of being committed to serving in the world. I'm sure it's part of your commitment and other people at the college to serving students there and students are starting to discover this in their lives. So if our hope is just in the change that we can produce as people, uh, we're going to get crushed eventually. Uh, but if our hope is in God and the work that God's doing in us and through us, and others in this kingdom uh, that is coming, you know, then I think we just keep having, we're sustained by relationship, we're sustained by worship, we're sustained by prayer, we're sustained by scripture, we're sustained by being able to love our neighbors and, and being faithful, being faithful, whether we see the results or not. So, um, so, so to me, I don't have a precise way to say it, but I think you're asking the, yeah, I, I love your question. And I think we want to have both. We want to just keep nurturing our love for God, keep nurturing our love for neighbor. And when we do both of these, we can really have a, a life of service that, that is faithful and deep and can affect change. The, the kingdom is slow in coming because it is here. It has started, but it is not yet. Mm -hmm. But uh, maybe it comes here faster when we start slowing down. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we have to slow down to be attentive and we have to slow down to respect people and hear from mm -hmm. them and the value they have and, and these, these practices. When I was in college, uh, I didn't read the Psalms too much. Uh, I read them every day now. And mm -hmm. particularly during this time in which we live, the, the Psalms capture the range of emotions that we're going through. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, it's hard to read a, a, a Psalm of lament, but it, it, it helps to ground us. And uh, I think that's maybe part of the, the slowness of the kingdom uh and and the truth of it hmm. well we're can I, on that sure. okay just give one suggestion to people Absolutely. listening on the psalms because i started doing this and i think i i think i got i should be able to give the right citation but i think it was c.s lewis where i learned this trick but you know he talked about reading the psalms and even some of the psalms of lament or some of the psalms where you know the the enemies babies are to be crushed oh, against yeah. the rocks and sort of the language about enemies can be a little disturbing in light of you know jesus telling us to love our enemies. It can be hard to know exactly what to do with those in the Psalms, but I think it was from C.S. Lewis and he talked about how we can, um, can replace those kind of with sins and suffering in the world. So think, think about the enemies that are causing suffering in the world. So my family and I started doing this like with my kids uh, at the dinner table and we read a Psalm most nights when we're having dinner and would read it and then just would replace that and start experimenting with it and really made the Psalms charged with, with life for us in this way, like they're already charged with life, but just for us in this COVID moment. So you say a Psalm 13 or something like that. And, and, you know, let not my, and let not COVID-19, you know, crush us and the people who are suffering right now do not abandon those who are having trouble breathing right now as they're facing the effects uh, in their lungs. But just to offer that as a suggestion for anyone listening that it, it can really, the Psalms, I'm the same way. I've been going through the Psalms recently and, 
and that little kind of C.S. Lewis uh, trick, I think, is a way to kind of read them in a in a way that just makes them charge for the moment as well. That's very helpful wisdom for us in in reading the scripture with with more purpose and meaning. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you mentioned COVID-19. Uh, we're all living through a very difficult season. There's there's a global pandemic. We're in the midst of an economic recession. And in our society, there's a great deal of social unrest, particularly over racial injustice. I mean, each of these alone would be daunting challenges, but they, they're flowing together and we're dealing with them simultaneously. Uh, some days it's just enough to get through the day and deal with the challenges, but I think it's important to reflect on what we're experiencing. And I want to ask you, what are you learning during these very unusual times about yourself, about your ministry, about God, about the world that we live in? Yeah, I think one of the things, no, I felt the same way just on a personal level and then our working as a team kind of responding to COVID-19. We've published published hundreds of articles and you know manuals and in a number of languages over the last six months uh, what i've really been learning is you know it's not a new lesson but you mentioned the fourth practice of um this book slow kingdom coming as partnering and i think when we come into this kind of moment like it's just too complex for any one of us you know so um i already loved collaborating but i think in this moment to collaborate both to be encouraged one day I'm up, a colleague can be down. Another day, I'm down, a colleague's up. So I think there's that emotional, spiritual level of collaborating. I think the expertise to step into issues that, as you said, they can uh, have racial unrest, economic stress, uh, mental and emotional uh, and spiritual fatigue, like sort of mental health issues that are coming up, uh, an increasing factor with social distancing, and you take economic stress on livelihood. And so... um, to me, the, the value of partnering and also one of the things that we do is the, the value of kind of leaning on experts in moments like this. So one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Jamie Aiton, has done this research for uh, more than a dozen years on how do you respond to people in disaster. And, and I worked with him along with the team. He was the leader on this BLESS method. So it's basically how do you talk with people in moments like this after disaster? And I think it, we adapted this to the COVID-19 moment. And when you check in, just give this as a practice, another practical thing that, that people at the college can do. When you check in with people, it's basically saying, here are these five categories where you can check in with someone, and the acronym for BLESS. So belonging, how are they doing uh, socially, emotionally connecting with people? Are they feeling isolated? Livelihood, is there this economic stress that means they don't have, like, is there a lack, some kind of physical lack that they have in their lives? Emotional health, how, you know, how are they doing emotionally up and down, depression, different things that come on. Um, safety, uh, is there any kind of domestic um, kind of strain or safety issue or uh, suicide risk that's there? Uh, and spiritual, how is their relationship with God, which is so important to going through stress? So think about this blessed method. And for me, one of the things I've learned is the value of having tools like this to be able to step in when we're overwhelmed, we can be paralyzed. But if we can rely on other experts and, and collaborate, we can have these tools that can make sure that we're, we're not only making it through, like you said, that's enough some days, but we're making it through loving our neighbors, especially those who are, are most vulnerable in moments like this. I would think the work that you've done with refugees uh, would serve you well with insights uh, in this time in which we live. These are people who've been displaced in their lives, have been disrupted. Have you made those transfers over to where we're living now? 
Yeah, first that's happened for sure. I feel like it's one of the you know it's weird to say I'm grateful, but both with refugees and working in and living with so many people in Haiti is sort of the gratitude and seeing resilience that people have, and it's not minimizing the suffering that they go through, but to see people have lost everything and and to sit around a a fire uh, and laughing with them and telling jokes and relationships are still meaningful. And so I do feel a certain um, humility and gratitude kind of even during really hard times. And a lot of that credit goes just to, in my gratitude for the relationships and, and people I've gotten to know through the work I've done. Yeah. Where you're doing meaningful work and I thank you for sharing it with us. I have a few questions before we um, sign off here. And most of the students around here know that, Sooner or later, I'm going to ask them, what is your high school mascot? What was it? It was the Lions. So the Kings Academy Lions down in, down in Florida. So tried to roar. I, I did most of my roaring on the basketball court. Uh, we did fairly well. Um, but, but uh, yeah, so the Lions, and they're still going strong as a high school. Okay. Well, as you know, uh, the, the camel is a very distinctive mascot. We're the only Division One school in the nation that uh, – that has this, and uh, there are no known native camels that are indigenous to North Carolina, but um, roll humps, you know. <laughs> I love it. Hump day is, is a big day around here. Uh, so you've been exposed to different cultures. You've lived in different places. This is maybe the hardest question I'm going to ask you at all. What's your favorite food? Oh, well, I, you're coming from North Carolina, and we, we did a number from Florida in the summers. We would do um, – do vacation uh, up to that kind of Asheville area just to escape the heat and do some hiking and see some of the beautiful North Carolina landscapes. So I think, you know, I, if I was talking with someone from India, I might say Indian, but since I'm talking with people in North Carolina, I'm going to have to go with, uh, with barbecue. I'm a big fan of barbecue and had some great barbecue there in North Carolina. Well, now you're, you're talking to a native Texan who's also lived in Alabama <laughs> and there are two versions of barbecue. Oh, there's competitions there. Yeah. And so I, I tell everybody I like it all. Uh, yeah. You know, I have to be diplomatic and, and somewhat political in the position that I have. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but barbecue or some version of it is something you can find all around the world. And uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, roots food and, and we certainly have it here. Well, you told me you like to hike. I like to do that as well, too. But uh, when you are doing what you're writing about, what are some other things you like to do? I like being outside. So I mentioned my son and daughter. So um, my daughter is playing tennis. Uh, so I like tennis, although I'm starting to like it less because I'm having a hard time uh, keeping up with her. Uh, and she's starting to beat me. So um, that and then my, my son is always ready either for shooting some hoops out in the out in the driveway or wrestling so those tend to be my main activities uh, when I'm not working well what'd you say he's 11 years old yeah there will come a time where you do not want to wrestle him yeah yeah it's getting close I'm coming away with some minor injuries I yeah. think they're gonna get major uh, before we're too long my son was actually a wrestler in high school and he's 30 years old now and he's in really good shape and uh I mean he could seriously hurt me if, if <laughs> So you're, you're going to have to be dad strong or old man strong or smart, but uh, that's, that's just a warning. That's the, good advice. The wrestling match will, will, will not end well for you. <laughs> and and that, that kingdom is fast coming and not slow. Coming. <laughs> that's great. I, I warned you. Uh, anything interesting that you've read lately uh, that, that kind of sticks out in your mind or something you're reading now? You know, there was just an article in Forbes I read last week. I shared it with my students and a number of people. Uh, oh, I'm going to forget his name. I, I hadn't heard of him before, but he says a billionaire. I think he's made his money through like duty-free shops uh, that he had started in airports. 
I can't again all, all these these facts will not be right but the gist of it is that you know he had made something like seven or eight billion dollars in his life and he had decided back 20 30 years ago he wanted to give it all away before he died and it said the man who wanted to the title is something like the man who wanted to become broke is officially broke but he he and his wife were down in their 80s I think down to two million dollars like savings just to live off in retirement and uh, gave away billions of dollars in bold and generous ways and I, I was just inspired by that none of us I mean, most of us aren't ever going to have billions or maybe even millions to go away, but I just thought that vision, a clarity of mission, a commitment, a strategic way of doing it and seeing it through in a lifetime. I don't know if he's, he's Christian or not. It didn't mention a faith background, but I just thought it was a beautiful story of a life well lived in generosity. Yeah, the very opposite life of uh, the bumper sticker that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Exactly. Opposite. Exactly. A life of acquisition and then de-acquisition. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, inspiring story. Ken Annan, thank you for being with us today. Uh, your work is inspiring. I encourage all of you who are listening uh, to get his book, Slow Kingdom Coming. Practices for doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly in the world. We're so grateful you spent time with us that you shared your life and your heart with Campbell University. We wish you Godspeed in the days ahead. Blessings to you. Thank you, Brad. So great being with you and with all all the students and staff and faculty at Campbell. Campbell Conversations is hosted by Campbell University President Jay Bradley Creed and is produced by Billy Liggett, Director of News and Publications. This episode was recorded via Zoom on September 25th, 2020. Music for this podcast is courtesy of Purple Planet. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next month.